2: Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen, along with Jonathan Farrell and Lisa Abramowitz. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg Terminal. Right now, a guy's out front. This is like Bob Dylan picking up an electric guitar at Newport a few years ago. Andrew Hollenhorst at Citigroup had the courage to come out early and say higher rates. And everybody said, you're nuts. Now he's not nuts. Everybody's joined the party. Reaffirm for us, Andrew Hollenhorst, where Mr. Powell's going right now. Give us that level that we will see next year.
3: I think we're going to be at 4% or above. And really, Tom, the call is really more about inflation than it is about rates. I think rates are following where inflation is going and where inflation has been. Um, We're sitting at 8%, 9% inflation. I think there's underlying core measures of inflation that look like maybe somewhere between 4% and 6%. When you're at those kind of levels of inflation, it's hard to think the policy rates aren't going to get up to around 4% or even above.
2: Your colleagues in London quoted 18% on United Kingdom energy affected inflation. I know we're not going to get something inflammatory like that, but is your headline to Jackson Hole that we will be surprised how difficult it is to drop inflation down? So I think there
3: are elements of inflation where we might see some relief. We've seen commodity prices move lower. Maybe we'll get some relief in goods prices. But the core issue for the U.S. economy, tightness in the housing market, which is maybe being relieved by higher mortgage rates, but tightness in labor markets. And that's what I keep coming back to. So you look at these core measures of underlying inflation that are running 4 to 6%. Then you look at underlying wage growth, employment cost index, Atlanta Fed wage tracker, really however you want to look at it, we're seeing wage growth 5% plus, and I think that that's really the issue for the Fed. It's a very, very tight domestic labor market, a lot of inflationary pressure. And I think we know from history that that does prove difficult to bring down. And you usually need a significant tightening of financial conditions to loosen the labor market and bring inflationary pressure down.
4: Andrew, just tell me the balance of risks around your view. 75 in September, 4% on Fed funds by year end. Tilted to the downside, tilted to the upside, fairly balanced. How's that change developed in the last month?
3: So we keep coming back to this and we keep trying to reassess, you know, at what point will we see more downside than upside risk to policy rates? And the answer we keep coming back with is that there's still more upside. I think at the September FOMC meeting, we have had some mixed data, um, some data on the activity side that looks pretty reassuring if you look at, for instance, 528,000 new jobs that were created, um, but some data that have been uneven. So I think it's very hard to call an individual meeting. We do think they'll go 75 basis points in September. I think that the easier call or the higher conviction call is where do they need to get to eventually how high do they need to get and how long do they need to stay there and i think they're the risks, especially relative to the market are very much to the upside remember this is a market that is still pricing in interest rate cuts in 2023 with the fed only getting up to a level maybe around three and a half 375 basis points i think the risks are definitely that the fed goes further than that and then maintains rates at a higher level for longer than that.
5: Analysts have been pushing back against this idea, Andrew, a little bit more, especially as they point to certain disinflationary aspects like, for example, used car sales or the inventories at retailers and the markdowns that they're planning for fall. There are all of these forces that are leading people to ratchet down how high they see inflation ending the year. Why do you disagree? Why are you pushing back against that narrative?
3: So I I think maybe we need some new definitions of core inflation. And those are actually out there. If you look at the Atlanta Fed, they have a great dashboard of various metrics, trimmed mean inflation, sticky price inflation, various flavors of core inflation. One thing that those various flavors of core inflation would do is look at something like used car prices and say something very specific and very different is going on with used car prices. There was A very particular issue with the shortage of semiconductors that pushed up used car prices very significantly. They're still extremely high. They're still elevated. So we're talking about changes in prices. They're coming down from very high levels. Um, So, yes, that's part of why we saw a weaker core inflation print in the month of July. We may have a similar print in August. If you look at the wholesale used car prices, they've come down again. Um, so that might end up coming through in the August core inflation print. But I think you know if you listen to Minneapolis Fed President Kashkari last night, for instance, used to be one of the biggest doves amongst Fed officials, now one of the biggest hawks. What is he doing? He's looking through those kind of one-time specific elements um, that probably don't tell us a lot about the underlying inflationary trend, um, which is around 4 to 6%. And again, it's, it really comes back to the tight labor market costs that service providers in particular have to pass on uh, to their customers. And so that acceleration that we've seen in wages, you'll probably see that showing up in prices. So we could actually accelerate in some components of inflation, even if, let's say, used car prices are coming down.
5: Okay. even with that, though, a lot of uh, analysts are saying, isn't it more likely that the Fed will raise rates to three and a half percent, three and three quarters percent and then hold it there for a while? Be patient. Wait for some of this tightening to trickle out. Why do you think that they will be unable to do that or do you think it's just sort of political pressure that if inflation remains high they will have to appear to be taking a harder line
3: i don't think it's political pressure lisa i really think it's fundamental economics basic monetary theory The idea that you need to get real interest rates, by which I mean the nominal interest rate minus some measure of underlying inflation, back to a level that's at least positive. I think that's probably the minimum that you need to get to, to have enough restraint in the economy to bring inflation down. Um, There are theoretical models that kind of suggest that, uh, but there's also just the empirical fact, the history on this, that typically you need to get that nominal policy rate. Up to the rate of inflation. So if you stop at three and a half percent in a world where inflation is running four percent, five percent, six percent, and on a headline basis we've been you know eight, nine percent, that means you're at a very significantly negative real rate of interest, um, and that's just really important because you are not going to slow down the economy, cool an overheating economy, um, by showing that economy showing individuals showing firms a negative real rate of interest so three and a half percent potentially if inflation comes down a lot faster than expected for exogenous reasons maybe they could end up there Um, but i think the more likely scenario is that inflation proves persistent the fed has to do the work of bringing it down which means those policy rates need to move above four percent
4: andrew i've got to squeeze this in we'll catch up with a ton of fed officials at the end of the week what would you like us to ask them? What are you focused on that you really think needs to be answered?
3: What I would love to hear, John, especially after the July FOMC meeting is some clarification of how Fed officials think about the neutral rate of interest. It's what we were just talking about with Lisa. Where do you need to get rates to to have zero effect on inflation? And then. How much further do you think you need to move rates to actually bring down inflation? Now We see some of that in their summary of economic projections, but we've also heard from Chair Powell the kind of confusing, perplexing statement that maybe policy rates are in a range of neutral now. I think it's hard to defend that position in a world where inflation is running much stronger. So I'd really like to hear more clarity around that issue.
4: You're not alone. Andrew Hollenhorst, thank you, sir. As always, from City.
2: on the bond analysis. Sobrata Rajapa joins us, head of U.S. rate strategy at SockGen. Sobrata, I'm absolutely fascinated by something off the radar, which is to me, the real yield that hasn't moved given inflation that's out there, given the idea that we may have higher interest rates. Are you surprised that the 10-year real yield is positive 0.46? Shouldn't it be higher?
6: I think what you've been seeing in the last few weeks is exactly what we saw ahead of the June uh, FOMC meeting where the market started to price in, uh, you know, much higher inflation expectations. So the move higher in 10-year yields this time around is mostly all because of a sharp rise in inflation expectations. And this is not just a U.S. phenomenon. You're seeing inflation expectations rise quite meaningfully uh, across uh, the the globe and and especially in Europe and, and the U.K., and you know the uh, break evens in in the in the us are also starting to widen in tandem with what you're seeing uh, globally so the market is starting to uh, price in perhaps uh, the potential for inflation to remain persistently high over the the longer run which is a little bit of a paradigm shift because for the last couple of months the market was giving the fed a lot of credibility in being able to bring down inflation expectations by raising well,
2: rates. A delicate question, It may be off your remit, but it's seen through yield. Is Chairman Powell losing credibility because the United Kingdom and continental Europe are falling apart?
6: I think it's definitely making the Fed's job a lot harder because there's a lot of externalities that they have to factor in. For instance, they have to take into account what's going to happen in, in uh, China. There's a meaningful slowdown in growth there. Uh, what's happening in in Europe with you know the potential for uh, you know a, a winter that's going to be very very rough and much higher inflation uh, in Europe? So in some respects, you know the the remit for the Fed is not just the U.S. but also what's happening globally. And globally, inflation is is a big concern. So they're going to have to factor that in into their into how they look at the, the markets in the U.S. And it's the same for the recession. You look at recession probabilities. They're rising a lot faster in in europe and in the uk they actually have a contraction penciled in for next year so those are the kinds of things that, that fetcher powell has to weigh into what into his uh, his equation for what he does with uh, with the us as far as policy is concerned in addition to what we're seeing in the data in the us and the inflation uh, trajectory in the us
4: Sebastian, what does president Lagarde do with this as a backdrop right now they've got a really really tough hand what do they do
6: you know, it's very, very tough. One, they're sort of coming, uh, you know, from uh, from they're behind the Fed, if you will, in in raising rates. I mean, they're trying to play catch up. There's going to be 50 basis point rate hike at the at the next ECB meeting. Uh, perhaps, you know, the Fed markets pricing nearly one point one and a quarter percent of hikes by the end of this year. So they're going to have to deliver a much more aggressive path of of, of rate hikes. But like you pointed out, John earlier, and it's a very good point. Is that as they're raising rates, you know, the, the currency is actually going to continue to weaken because of the backdrop on, on recession and a meaningful slowdown in, in growth and the risks associated with the war in Ukraine. So it really, really is a complicated, uh, you know, of, of optim- optimization function uh, for the ECB because it's not just about inflation, but it's also about, uh, again, externalities. In the United States, there's a huge debate brewing about
5: whether the Fed can raise rates to a certain level and then hold them there to see how long it'll take to get inflation down or whether they have to uh, raise rates to a somewhat more punitive level. And we've heard that even this morning. Yesterday, we heard that with Jan Hatias. This morning, uh, we heard this from Jim Caron on the Jan Hatias camp and then Andrew Hollenhorst saying, no way, they've got to go much further than
6: that. Where do you stand? I think the market is extraordinarily efficiently priced in for what the Fed said they're going to do for the next couple of years. So I think Fed funds rate gets to around maybe three and a quarter percent by the end of this year uh, and then uh, perhaps to three and a half percent to three point seven five percent by next year. You know, to me, this whole argument that they should, you know, hike well beyond four percent uh, and then, uh, sort of, that's the only way they're going to be able to rein in inflation. It doesn't make a lot of sense because if they do that, then there, there's a potential that that things break. The economy in the U.S. is still is is quite brittle. So if they do tighten policy quite aggressively, there's a there's a greater risk that we could go into a much deeper recession. In which case, they'd have to cut rates and pivot a lot faster. Sure, if they yeah. go sort of gradually, get to around three and a half to three point seven five percent sometime next year, and then keep rates, uh, you know, steady. I think that's a much better outcome than aggressively hiking rates and then have to cut soon after they get well beyond 4%.
5: Before we let you go, I'd love to get your sense of where you think
6: that inflation's gonna end the year, CPI in the United States. You know, that's that's a tough one. I mean, it's really hard to know. I think, uh, you know, the trajectory, I think broadly speaking is for inflation to continue to gradually decline, but it's really the, the, the majority of the declines you're gonna see are going to be in, in upcoming years, not so much this year. What the Fed will be looking to see is if we actually see, um, you know, inflation starting to trend lower month after month. I think that would be a win for this year.
4: Subhadra, thank you. Subhadra Jepra of Sokjen. Difficult time for Europe and the ECB. Difficult time for Fed Chair Jay Powell. We'll hear from him on Friday.
2: Right now on the American labor economy, Tom Purcelli joins as chief U.S. economist at RBC Capital uh, Markets. Tom, I want to dovetail with another shop. This came out moments ago from Kalanovic over at Goldman Sachs, who's an equity strategist, and he posits good equity markets, forget about that, because of declining inflation. Do you at RBC Capital Markets perceive declining inflation? Yeah, we do.
7: We think inflation will slow uh, and we think, it, it, you know, you could start to see some slowing show up right around the turn of the year at the core level. Headline is obviously a completely different animal. Um, we'll see what happens with uh, energy prices, which, uh, you know, our, our house call is that they will be on the rise um, over the coming months. But at the core level, yeah, we do. We think that will wind up slowing down um, before the end of the year. You gonna have to get through this like one more month of sort of unfavorable year ago comp. Um, But once you get beyond that, we think that um, some of the sort of the the, the price pressure that we're starting to see, the downward price pressure, will start to show through. (laughs) Again, let's be clear, everyone, it's not gonna be in some sort of notable, meaningful way, um, but you will start to see that process slow, again, even as early as before the end of the year. And then as we roll into um, the next, uh, next year, I, I think it's really reasonable to think that core inflation could surprise people um, to, to the downside. I mean, there's a lot of price pressure that is in the pipeline right now, and a lot of downward price pressure in the pipeline. Um, And we think that'll start to show up.
5: Well, that's certainly what Marco Kalanovic over at JP Morgan uh, seems to believe as well. Still, others say, well, look at wages and how much they're increasing. Look at some of these stickier elements. Look at food. Look at gas, which is reemerging as a pretty significant inflationary headwind. How do you factor those things in? When do you start to think maybe I'm wrong and the Fed does need to go further uh, than perhaps some people think?
7: so, so this is a this is a really great question and and, and I think that it's it's important because I, I I can see a plausible scenario where headline prices. Um, are remaining sort of stable at high levels if you do get this this drift higher from an energy price perspective if food prices um, continue to uh, uh, remain firm. Although, uh, let's just be clear, we are seeing signs that food prices are slowing down. But again, just to your point, like just for for fun, um, let's just say that all of that does happen. Um, You could see a scenario where headline prices uh, remain, you know, again, relatively high, but core prices slow that's a really tricky spot for the Fed. And this is something we've been talking about and writing about for quite some time. The Fed needs to unhitch their wagon from headline prices. They can't control that stuff. They can't control food or energy prices. Um, And and I I know it's going to be a a question of, hey, but what about inflation expectations? Yeah, but I I get that. But if inflation expectations are rising because of things that the Fed can't control, um, then I I think the Fed needs to make more of a distinction in, in that regard. Um, And so we would actually argue that the Fed is supposed to be really focused on core. Powell and and others within the Fed have even recently said that that's what they're supposed to be um, following, but I I think they've just got caught up into this, this loop of, they've really only talked about headline prices, uh, I think that's going to come back to haunt them um, if you actually don't see headline prices slow with core, which is what we expect.
5: OK, so let's say the Fed comes out with this nuanced message that you're putting out there, which is this, this yeah. inflationary kind of feel, uh, gaining wind next year and yeah. giving them more space. If they yeah. say that, doesn't the market rip? And this is what I asked Lori Heinel. And this is sort of the conundrum. Financial conditions will move yeah. against them, especially considering the expectation yeah. for a hawkish speech from Jay pell
7: yeah, I think that's I think that's totally fair in the in the immediate term. But let's just be clear, there's a lot of challenges in the backdrop right now, right? Like a, I, I know some people who keep on latching on to this idea that, hey, the payroll report, you know, showed acceleration in job gains. I get it. Mm-hmm. But but does it make sense? Right. I mean, so I think I heard Tom earlier say, you know, like, look, labor is a lagging indicator and he's 100 percent right. And, and it's funny to me that it's, uh, that people just seem to sort of um, lose that narrative. So but let's talk about the acceleration in jobs, which people are still talking about two weeks you know, after the report or three weeks, whatever it's been. Jobless claims are up. Even if you make the adjustment for the for, for the sort of the seasonal factor thing, they're still up. They're up about 30% from the lows. That tends to be consistent with um, uh, potential uh, seeing job losses uh, um, shortly thereafter. Um, also, it happens to coincide with uh, you know countless companies talking about the idea of laying people off. Two, I think you have to keep in mind that the ISMs, um, all the uh, labor indicators within there, are now below break even. Um, the the labor differential from Uh, the conference board that's now starting to roll over Um, uh, hours worked hours worked are actually sliding it's not something you would expect to see if labor was actually that tight and that's actually taking average weekly earnings with it I mean there's a host of things and by the way there's more but I'll just say this one last thing the cherry on top of all that is volume of spending is slowing I mean I, you know, I, I don't know what more people need to see to understand okay. that actually things are squishier than is appreciated.
2: Tom, on the same page with you as David Rosenberg, who partitions inflation like you do wage growth. And David Rosenberg publishes this morning that housing is approaching what he calls a tailspin. Is the ginormous yeah. shock of the end of the year, which is the housing microdynamics fold over to rent dynamics, which flat or even stabilize?
7: Yeah, so look, I think it's really easy to say that housing is in a recession right now. I mean, I don't think that's a heroic call in any way. I think most people probably appreciate that or many people are, I think are be growing to appreciate that. I think prices are gonna start to fall. Um, uh, outright decline. I think that could actually happen again before the, even before we get to the end of the year. These things take time, though. I mean, I, it's funny. I I, I I sort of been chuckling. I, I guess macro is such in focus, and, and, and maybe these are conversations that we should have been happening, having with people over the, you know, the, the, the couple of decades that I've been doing this. These things take time to develop. Um, if, if it's already in front of you, right? Like if everything that I'm talking about is so, uh, uh, or, or if, if, if housing is falling into a recession, the consumer's already slowing, then it's too late, right? Like, it's like, you have no leading, you know, there, there's no lead there. I mean, we're talking about things that take time to develop. Um, and it's, it seems pretty clear to us that we're moving in that direction, that things are slowing more meaningfully than is appreciated.
4: Some of these things though, Tom, are the objective. They're the objective. And I wonder when we get to that more problematic phase, And I just wonder how high the hurdle is for not for this Fed to cut, but for this Fed to pause.
7: Pause. I, I, Jonathan, I agree with that. I I think that the the, the real risk here, look, uh, we have our view, right? Our view is that the Fed basically stops um, uh, by the end of the year. I mean, you basically you're going to be at 350 and the hiking cycle is going to be done. Um, But I think the real risk and, and let me be clear, I think that's absolutely the right move. You know, get policy into so you have somewhat restrictive territory, let that marinate, um, and then I think, you know, we'll, we'll be in fine shape next year, uh, relatively much. shape. make no mistake, things are going to slow. But the real risk is that... <laughs> The Fed does not unhitch its wagon from um, inflation, particularly headline prices, and that they just keep on going. And I, I think you guys are going to Jackson Hole, by the way, I'm disappointed I'm not speaking to you in Jackson Hole. I was hoping to see a bear rolling around behind you. <laughs> I think the one thing that people okay, need but to... Keep it up, Sally. Eating marmalade. Tom, I, I heard how nervous you are about this. It's hysterical to me. By the way, if you want to see bears, come up to where I live in Westchester. There's bears everywhere. It's actually amazing. But they're not um, grids. But I think to, they're a lot in Wall Street, too. <laughs> I'll have you up for drinks one day, Tom. We'll, we'll talk about bears. So, oh, I now you got my that, attention. <laughs> <laughs> I think the one thing that is really compelling, and the thing that I think we really need to hold the Fe- the feds uh, the, their feet to the fire on, is. What do they really want to see from inflation? Because if you're waiting for inflation to get to 2%, it, it, this is gonna, it, it, funds are going to be meaningfully higher than anyone appreciates. I don't think that that's what they're going to do. I think that they know better than that, and I think they just need to sort of sell that narrative. But I, I think if, that's act, if I'm wrong, and they actually keep on hiking rates, the hiking cycle will go on for meaningfully longer than anyone appreciates, and the recession will be meaningfully deeper than anyone appreciates.
4: Tom, great to catch up. Tom Porcelli of RBC Capital Markets. Welcome back anytime.
2: I wanted to talk to one person. I'm going to get upset here on Julian Robertson. One person yesterday I wanted to talk to. Douglas Cass at Kidder Peabody a million years ago when Julian Robertson, out of the Navy, out of Chapel Hill, said, I'm going to go to Kidder Peabody, and he was restless. Doug Cass, how restless was the giant those many years ago?
8: Well, let me explain my relationship with him, Tom, at least. Uh, I was only 22 years old when I met Julian. Um, I had just graduated with an MBA at Wharton, and my first job on Wall Street was at 10 Hanover Square as a housing analyst at Kidder Peabody & Company. Now, Julian had a small office just like me. Actually, he was right next to me. He was working out of the New York City office of Webster Management, which was the investment management arm of Kidder, which was run out of Boston and headed by a guy, Gerald Curtis. Uh, working with him in New York City with two young kids about my age, Tom Dean and Thorpe McKenzie, and an older marketing guy, at least he seemed old, or maybe he was 28 years old, <laughs> Alan Fleming, whose son Peter would, would team up with John McElrath to become the right. number one doubles team in tennis in the world. Anyway, he was really nice to me, Julian. We probably chatted five times a day. I really wanted to manage money ultimately, so I was always picking his brain uh, I remember he was kind enough with Ralph Denunzio, who was then president of Kidder at the time, to sponsor me for admission to the Princeton Club of New York a year after we met. I also remember in the beginning he forgot my name all the time. <laughs> oh, he he
3: forgot my Tiger. name, too.
8: He called me Tiger. <laughs> and I would later find out that he called everyone. We forgot their names, Tiger. And for that reason, he named the hedge fund Tiger Management. But I have one interesting analytical confrontation Please. with them that I don't want to miss. Uh, I was a kidder for a year or so, which is sort of time. And I'm going to frame his intensi- his analytical intensity. At the time, I was Kidder's housing analyst, and I wrote an extensive 75-page <laughs> industry review on a very hot group in the market, the mobile home and recreational yeah. vehicle industry. And not surprisingly, Tom, I was negative on the group and recommending short sale. <laughs> um, anyway, Julian's group owned the stocks, Champion Home Builders, Skyline, mm-hmm. Redmond, and Fleetwood Enterprises. And I vividly remember his intensity. He would bring in sandwiches for lunch with uninvited, plop them in my office during that period, right. and have his analyst and two other sell side analysts <laughs> grill me. They were bullish to debate me continuously. And he ended up selling the stocks on my advice, and the stocks plummeted with Redmond and Champion almost Great. filing okay. I think champion fought bankruptcy. Doug. But from there on he respected me and he remembered my name, Dougie.
2: So much so much of it, Doug Cass, is about what Sebastian Mallaby wrote about. It's about the charity of he and Josie and, and, and everything he did for New York. Doug, how did he get from the office next to you? to what Sebastian Malaby wrote about in that book. How did he make the jump to the something jump? called a hedge fund?
8: That's a great, great question. I think the key to his success, and it's something Stanley Druckenmiller always reminds me and others of. Mae we, May West had this line, she used to say, too much of a good thing can be wonderful. Julian made big bets after doing comprehensive and exhaustive analysis and research. uh, And and I think that's that is the answer. He believed in his analysis, put his money where his mouth was, and of course he was an uncommon had this uncommon ability to find talent. But like all of us, he wasn't perfect. A good example was Bill Huang, one of his uh, disciples, who famously blew up Archegos. So um, yeah. that, that was a blemish. Well, let's
2: get obviously. Lisa Bramwitz in here. Lisa?
5: Well, Doug, I, I'm just thinking uh, about the legacy of someone who redefined many ways that people believed in the hedge fund industry. Doug, what do you think his legacy, in addition to all his Tiger Cubs that he seeded and helped to support, what is his legacy as imprint on the business of hedge, hedge funds?
8: I honestly think, as a humanist, his legacy was not making all that money. Remember, he started with $8.5 million in 1980. It became $22 billion by 1998. I, I don't think that was it. I think that he transferred his generosity, his charity, and his philanthropic style and endeavors to his disciples, Griffin, Coleman, Haverson. LaFont, Mandel, and I think that that's his legacy, his charitable
2: right. giving. Doug, we're out of time. Doug Kass, thank you so much from Seabreeze uh, Partners.
0: Julian Robertson, the billionaire Tiger management founder who became one of his generation's most successful hedge fund managers and also a mentor to a wave of investors known as Tiger Cubs uh, died yesterday at the age of 90. And I've been on wall street for 30 years and to me he was the father of the hedge fund business i had one meeting with him and i remember it clearly uh tiger was just an absolute monster account you had to have your tentacles into if you were a sell side analyst uh because you had to be in the information flow and they certainly were john griffin he's a founder of blue ridge capital he's chairman of the robert hood foundation uh joins us uh he is one of those aforementioned tiger cubs john Thanks so much for taking the time. I really appreciate it. Um, I'd love to get from you, your perspective. Uh, I know you guys are very tight, uh, the folks that worked for Julian. What's something that we should know about Julian that maybe we don't know?
9: Well, you said it best. You had one meeting with Julian and you remembered Sure. Um, since his uh, passing, I've had hundreds and hundreds of emails saying the same thing. Um, he, he was a larger-than-life presence. He had a passionate, Love of 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 people, um, and I think his 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 love of business and investing really came um, from from getting to know people. He 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 was someone who I met. Uh, I was 22 years old. Uh, I met him for the first time in 1986. <laughs> uh, I was working at an investment bank, and I met him, and I was immediately taken um, by I don't know every aspect about him. He wanted to. Talk to me about my life, what I was interested in. He, uh, he wanted to know if um, uh, I would like investing. I asked him what his investment style was, and I'm sure you've heard this many times before, but he said it simply. He said at Tiger we look for the very best companies and we go along those and then we spend time trying to find the absolute worst companies that we think won't be really worth anything and we short those. Um, and if we, we can't make money that way, then we should go do something else.
3: John, you are also a teacher at our joint alum, the University mm. of Virginia. I have several friends who've the taken comm class. The comm school. The com school. Yeah, I know it's that. It's still the University of Virginia, <laughs> Paul, don't worry. Um, Paul being a little bit of a business school snob here, whatever. Um, but John, you, you teach a lot of this kind of methodology uh, to, to a lot of my friends, of course, to a lot of University of Virginia students, among other students in the United States. I'm curious if you can dig in a little bit to the methodology uh, that Julian Robertson taught you.
9: Sure. And it comes back to people. So Julian's view was, you know, you can't really learn much by by just reading a sell side, you know, analyst report. He wanted people in the field talking to competitors, um, customers, suppliers, former um, former workers and, and see if by really intense um, research, which often came just from conversations, you could uh, find an investment that looked um, uh, different, uh, to the world than, than, than what you had. And Julian loved it. I mean, this is before, uh, 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 computers and contacts <laughs> I mean, and, and he had two wagon wheels of Rolodexes. So imagine massive Rolodexes that are so big that they can't fit on your desk.
0: And John, many, many, many of our folks out there probably don't even know what a Rolodex is, but I get you.
5: He's talking you guys, about me. I know what a Rolodex hard. is. <laughs>
9: Little cards with people's names on them, yep. And he would, and they would be alphabetical, and they would be by industry. And he had a photographic memory for who to call on what type of company in what industry, and ask questions. And the questions um, were uh, also what he was known for. Okay, you like this company? What's your what company do you hate? What's your least favorite company? And I know it's like <laughs> asking you your least favorite child, right? But I need to know.
0: Yep. And
9: that was his methodology. It was a lot of in-field work, bottoms-up fundamental analysis.
0: John, talk to us about the, the philanthropy of Julian Robertson. Sure,
9: uh, very early on. Uh, Julian, in uh, uh, 1990, asked me to go visit Paul Jones. Paul Tudor Jones, who had founded Robin Hood two years early at the age of, I believe, 33. Wow. He said, Paul's doing something in philanthropy. Go down there and talk to him so i went down and paul told me what he was doing suggested we join forces i came back and said to uh jillian that uh, he wants to join forces and jillian said no nope, i want to do the tiger foundation same way okay. we're going to use our analysts to go out in the field we're going to have them meet the companies we're going to have them research i mean the not for profits we're going to have them research them like the, we research companies and that was the start of the tiger foundation
5: So how do
3: you think Julian's legacy is really going to stay alive? Of course, we know 200 firms, or I think something along 200 firms, is tied back to Julian Robertson's teachings. I'm curious how we pass that on.
9: I think it's passed on in the way he treats people, the way he treated people. I think it's the way it's passed on in how, you know, unassailable integrity was always his guide. I think it's passed on um, in in, in being competitive but never – losing the people aspect of the business. I mean, he was just a great person who treated people so well. People who have had one meeting with him, remember the meeting and remember it for a really good positive reason. <laughs> uh, and I, and I think, I think that's the legacy. It, it transcends just the investment style. Um, and it, 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 it's uh, captured in his letters, which may be published at some point. It's captured in, um, uh, the chapter in the book uh by Sebastian Mallaby called big Cat it's uh captured still in these classes at u v a um and the students who study his methods and he spoke I taught twenty years at u v a um and Julian spoke at eighteen of those eighteen years. Julian was the featured speaker
0: yeah great stuff uh john i mean the, you know the University of Virginia that's a nice connection there you got uh, you know john griffin lee ainsley mike pauzek i mean guys like that that have been you know in this hedge fund business over the last 30 years uh there's a nice pipeline there from the uh the com school at the university of virginia Uh, john griffin thank you so much for joining us really appreciate it president ceo and founder of uh blue ridge capital also uh, chairman of the robin hood foundation
2: this is the bloomberg surveillance podcast thanks for listening